the last time we were together, uh, we looked at the first four verses and, uh, and just kind of dug and dug and dug through those verses. Uh, and so I'm going to do a quick review of those verses just to get us launched into the rest of the argument here in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we come to your word and we know that because of Adam's sin, because we fell in Adam, uh, we are ourselves no longer perfect. Uh, that even our ability to come to your word, to read it, to understand it, to be transformed by it, depends upon your spirit. And so we pray, Father, this morning as we read your word, as we consider it, uh, that you would give us insight, give us uh, not the world's wisdom, but your wisdom, uh, that we would know what is true and what is right and good. Father, that we ourselves would have that image of Christ, uh, the image in which we were created, restored to us, as we anticipate the day of Christ's return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so in those first four verses, uh, we've, we've recognized that there's a ton of, uh, of things packed in those verses, uh, that, that Christ is at the center of all of this. Here, so far, he has only named the Son, uh, Jesus. The name Jesus doesn't appear in these opening verses. Uh, he is a Son, the text tells us. And then when we, we read the rest of those verses, some of the things that we, we were able to recognize there is, uh, is that Christ not only speaks a word, but he is the word, that Christ fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We see Christ in his humiliation and his exaltation. Uh, all of this is going to be unpacked over the course of the rest of the book of Hebrews. And in the last verse of that opening section, uh, it says, uh, let's see, in verse 4, really it's the sentence starts up in 3. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, and so that invites the question, where did the, the reference to the angels come from? Why, why is he talking about angels all of a sudden? One of the other things we recognized in those verses is all of the, the verbs and the nouns and the, the ideas that are connected to speech, right? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, uh, but uh, in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. Uh, he created the world, which is a veiled reference to speech, right? Because how did God speak or create? He spoke. Uh, Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, verse 3. Why does that matter? Why are we being told that here? It's because as a message and a messenger. He has the, the divine seal of God uh, verifying that the message is legitimate, not merely that Christ has gotten the message from God, but that he is himself that message, and that all that he speaks, he speaks with authority. Uh, you see that, uh, that then finally we come to, uh, let's see, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and then finally we come to angels, which are themselves a reference to this speaking, this word, this message, angels. It's even in the, the meaning of the Greek word itself, uh, are messengers. They are those who bring messages. And so Christ is superior not only to prophets, but superior to angels. And so what we're going to see as we, we go on from here into the verses to come is the author of Hebrews defending and unpacking his assertion that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels, right? And so uh, this is going to go all the way through the end of chapter 2. 
And if you look ahead, look down to, uh, to chapter 2. Um, well, let's see. Find my place. Uh, yeah, all the way down in 2.16. Uh, it's been a bit since the author mentioned angels, but here as he comes to the conclusion of his ar- argument, this particular argument, he's about to transition in chapter 3, uh, make a fairly significant transition. He brings us back, verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, we're not jumping ahead to that just yet, but that that becomes a bookend on this argument. He's introduced in chapter 1, verse 4, the the idea that Christ is greater than the angels. And he's going to finish chapter 2 by reminding us that Christ is greater than the angels. Everything in between is, is one argument unfolding. So let's take a look. He opens his argument with a series of proofs. Uh, notice how, if, uh, if you're not familiar, in your Bible, uh, there, there are things that he will quote here that are inset, right? There may be a, a space from one line to the next, and then the margins on the quotes will, will be different. Uh, when you see that in your English New Testament, uh, the author is quoting the Old Testament. And your Bible will, unless it's the, the simplest of Bibles, which is fine, uh, but, but if they add anything to it, the editors, the very first thing they add is cross-references. And so if you've got a bunch of tiny verse references at the bottom of the page or down the center column or maybe an outside column, uh, those things are cross-references that show you, in this instance, where he's quoting from. And so you, you'll probably see a tiny little letter of the alphabet uh, at the beginning of a quote, and if you look down to that verse number and then that letter... Uh, after that verse number in those tiny little notes, you'll see a reference. And so it's important when we're doing Bible study, and particularly when you're in the New Testament and it quotes the Old, it's important to go back and read that Old Testament text, to look at its context, to try and understand better what the New Testament author is doing. So we're going to do some of that this morning. It says, uh, first of all, I want to point out uh, the question was raised last time, uh, what, is, what name has he inherited? It says he's uh, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name? Uh, the name Jesus hasn't even been included yet in the, the text. The author of Hebrews hasn't used his name. Look at, uh, at how the logic unfolds, though. Uh, he is uh, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For, that's a, that's a logical conjunction, for. He's about to explain uh, or prove what he's just said. For, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's why I answered last time that son is the name he has inherited, right? Uh, he says he's uh, superior, he's as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is superior. How do I know that? Look at the name he's inherited. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And notice the author of Hebrews says, to what angel did God ever say that? So the angels, whatever they are, how power, however powerful, however magnificent they are, however important they are, and the fact that they have an audience at the throne of God, that they surround him, Nonetheless, Christ is greater. He's not, uh, not a servant of God, but the Son. 
And he's going to give you another example. That's Psalm 2-7. We'll look at that in a minute. Uh, he says, or again, so we're going to apply that same opening statement, for to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God never said that to or about one of the angels. So right off the bat, proof number one that Jesus is greater than the angels is that he is a son and God is his father. And this is not true of the angels. Right? Let's take a look at Psalm 2. Uh, we've talked about Psalm 1 and 2 before. We've preached these psalms and we've taught these psalms in Sunday school. Uh, these psalms are like the, the twin pillars that you had to go through to get into the temple. Psalms 1 and 2 are the, the twin pillars through which you enter into the Psalter. Virtually all of the themes that we encounter in the psalms are found in these two psalms. And in Psalm 2, we have a, a messianic psalm that, uh, that makes reference to his rule right? You know, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, again, that anointed there is Mashiach, Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the context for the quote here in Hebrews 2. It's, it's clearly a reference to the Messiah, uh, a reference, then, therefore, to Jesus Christ. Uh, God, the Father, says to his Son, Jesus Christ, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Second uh, Samuel 7.14 is the next quote, I will be a father, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Second Samuel 7, for those of you who remember your, uh, your biblical theology, is the Davidic covenant. This is where God comes to Christ, or to uh, David, and makes a promise to him. Remember, David is, is eager to build a temple, uh, and God says, no, you're, you're a man of blood. Uh, you're not going to be the one who builds a temple for me, uh, but... Uh, and, and temple and house here are used interchangeably, right? He says, you will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. Only when God makes this promise, he's talking about a dynasty. Uh, he's talking about offspring to rule on the throne. And one particular offspring that when, when described in 2 Samuel 7, sounds like Solomon, but can't quite be Solomon. And in fact, none of the offspring of David until Jesus Christ fit the bill. So 2 Samuel 7 is about Christ, and this one who is promised to David who will be from his line and will sit on the throne forever, to this one God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the author of Hebrews here knows his Old Testament, uh, and he quotes Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 in proof number one, which is that Christ is greater than the angels because he is a son rather than a servant. Okay, pause. Questions? Insights? 
Okay. Well, let's move to proof number two. Proof number two is interesting. It's a, it's a bit difficult, but I think that the author of Hebrews clears it up for us in chapter 2, verse 5. He says here in, in verse 6, and again, so now he's going to give us another argument. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So proof number two is that the angels worship Christ. Therefore, he must be greater than the angels because he receives worship from them. There's some question as to when this is referring to. Uh, it's a quote probably from Deuteronomy 32, 43, uh, which if you go back and look at that verse in Deuteronomy, it's not quite, it doesn't quite read the way the author has, uh, has quoted it here. Uh, if you look back at, uh, and this is harder for those who don't have the resources, but the Old Testament was translated into Greek prior. It was written in Hebrew originally and then later translated into Greek because the Jewish people had been spread all over the Greco-Roman world, and Greek was the common language for many of them. And, uh, and just like we see happen today when, uh, when somebody immigrates to America, that, that first generation born in America, if they're not consciously, intentionally teaching them their native language from home, they lose that language. Uh, and, and Jewish kids were growing up and, and losing uh, that language. And so the Bible, the Old Testament, was being translated by uh, the, the Jewish scholars from Hebrew into Greek. And we call that the Septuagint. We've talked about this before. It's sometimes represented in writing as the LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70, which is also what Septuagint means, uh, is 70. Uh, it comes from a, uh, a myth that 70 Jewish scholars went into separate cubicles and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And then when they were done, they came out and compared their work, and all of them had come up with the exact same translation. It was intended to give divine authority to a Greek translation, right? Uh, so sometimes when we're studying the New Testament, the New Testament authors had the Septuagint. And for some of them, it was their primary scripture. This was the scripture they worked in. Uh, or they might be writing to an audience that they know primarily uses the Septuagint. So it's actually more of our Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are quoted from the Septuagint than they are from the Old Testament Hebrew, right? So uh, when you look at this quote, uh, this verse, Deuteronomy 32:43 in the Septuagint, it only differs from the quote here in one place, uh, which is quite easily explained. It says, let, uh, let all the sons of God worship him. But in the Old Testament, sons of God is used to refer to the angels. All right? there's, there's a disputed passage in, Deuteronomy, or in uh, Genesis 6, but elsewhere it refers to the angels, the sons of God. And so the author of Hebrews has simply made that clear. Rather than sons of God, he says the angels of God. Let all God's angels worship him. So we go back to Deuteronomy 43, and we see this. The question is when. When he brings the firstborn into the world, it might seem obvious that he's talking about the incarnation. That's when he brought Christ into the world. Christ is the firstborn, right? But there's, it's almost certainly not Christ's incarnation, uh, but Christ's uh, either his resurrection or his return. And the reason we say that, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, uh, look at what it says. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So what is the author of Hebrews speaking of in these verses when he talks about the world? He's talking about the world to come. Okay, so if we go back to the verse in question, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 6, or uh, let's see, yes, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, what world? The world to come. So that's almost certainly uh, Christ's return. Uh, as well, firstborn is used of Christ to describe him as the firstborn from the dead in Paul's writings. So we're looking to the, the resurrection and particularly the return of Christ. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Nonetheless, the author's point is that the angels worship Christ and therefore Christ must be greater. Because nothing would worship something lesser than itself. The same argument, the author's going to use the same argument when he talks about Melchizedek, right? Because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. There must be something about Melchizedek greater than Abraham. So, uh, I'll pause again. Questions, comments, observations? Yeah. Yes, um, the, so it's, this sounds absurd, but this is how the, the grammar works. It is a future present. It's a present tense in form, but its force is future. And it's the when that modifies the force of that present tense. When he brings, right? We do it in English. Uh, we don't say when I will bring. We say, when I bring, right? When I bring you the TV remote, please change the channel to X. So I haven't done it yet, but I'm still using bring in the present tense. And so grammarians will refer to that as a future present or a present with future force or something along those lines. And it's the word when that modifies that present, the force of that present tense. Yeah, other questions? Okay, uh, then let's move on to proof number three. Proof number three is considerably longer. It's verse 7 through verse 12. And what's being proven here in proof three is that the angels depend upon God, but the Son is sovereign over all and is God, right? So uh, look at what it says. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but, contrast, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And your, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So 
he only makes reference to what's true of the angels in that first proof. The rest of this, or that first uh, reference there in verse 7, the rest of this proof, verses 8 through 12, is focused on Christ and what's true of Christ. Of the angels, he, that is God, makes his possessive angels, winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. They are dependent upon God. It's God who fills the angels with their mission and purpose and power, but that's not how Scripture speaks of the Messiah. Not only is he a son rather than a mere servant, but the son is himself God and he rules. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Uh, the first quote about the angels is Psalm 104, 4. Uh, and then verses 8 and 9 are Psalm 45, 6 and 7. If you were to go back and read those in their context in Psalm 45, you would find that there's no, no questions, no concerns about the, the way he's quoted. He's quoted it directly. Uh, and the same for verses 10 through 12. Uh, these are from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Uh, and in all of these, if you go back and you read them in context, you'll see that it's talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the one that God will appoint to rule and whose rule will, will be forever, and who is not only the one appointed by God to rule, but is called himself God and is described as creating the earth and destroying it. You laid the foundation, you will roll them up like a robe. He both creates and he brings to judgment. All of this making him greater than the angels who are mere ministers of God and who derive all of their power and all of their authority from outside of themselves. They derive it from God. But Christ, who is the Son, inherently has all of the power and the authority because he is also God. It's... Uh, Interesting, I'm going to run through 10 things that were, were fairly easy to identify uh, about or from these verses about the Son. The Son is God. The Son is King. The Son is perfectly righteous. The Son is God's uniquely anointed. I'm going too fast if you're trying to write all this down. Sorry. Let's, let's go slower and I'll show you where I'm getting it. The Son is God. Verse 8. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. The Son is God. The, God is, or the Son is King. He says, your throne is forever and ever. That's consistent with the promise made to David, isn't it? In, second, or in first Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, we talked about earlier. Uh, he says, your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, uh, he says, um, he goes on to describe him as God again. So the Son is God, the Son is King, the Son is perfectly righteous. Again, still in verse 8, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The Son is perfectly righteous. The Son is God's unique, uh, uniquely anointed one. Therefore, God, verse 9, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, the, the verb anointed here is related to the, it's the same word group as the noun for anointed, Mashiach, from which we get Messiah. So the Son of God is, uh, the Son is God's uniquely anointed. Five, the Son created the heavens and the earth. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. See, heavens and earth, right? We just read about that this morning in Genesis 1. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, the anointed of the Lord is being described as having laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of his hands. Uh, If you look back at Hebrews 1, verse 2, you'll see he's already asserted this. Uh, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the author of Hebrews uh, being consistent here. Five, the Son created the heavens and the earth. Six, the Son is indestructible. They, verse 11, they, the created things, will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and he'll be there when it happens. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. He is indestructible. The sun is eternal. The sun will judge the earth. Uh, and so that's, that's implicit here in this language of uh, wearing out like a garment, being rolled up like a robe. That all happens at the judgment. The sun will be judged by no one. He, he remains even in the midst of the ultimate punishment, the ultimate judgment of all things. He is not judged, but is instead the judge and is judged by no one. The Son is eternal. We've looked at that already under uh, 6. The Son is indestructible, and the Son is eternally unchangeable. You are the same, verse 12, and your years will have no end. So we see in this third proof that the angels are changeable. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They are dependent upon him. They are not God. They did not create, and they will not judge. But they are merely ministers of God. So proof three, the angels depend upon God, but the Son is sovereign over all and is God. I'll pause again. Questions? Insights? Thank you. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent observation. Yeah, he he not only assumes that these passages are about Christ, but he actually places these passages, sometimes the words themselves coming out of the mouth of somebody else, David quite often with the Psalms that are being quoted here, for example, but he doesn't attribute them to David, does he? He says, uh, if we go all the way back up, verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, or again, quote, 
verse uh, 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, that's God, of the angels, he says, but of the Son, he says. And, quoting another passage yet again, yeah, so all of the quotes from the Old Testament here are attributed to God. And, uh, and give us confidence that we are to understand Scripture to be the very Word of God. Not, as uh, many in the Western church in the late 1900s, or late 19th century, uh, argued that these are not the words of God, but are simply the record of men. That men recorded what they believed at a given time and place. And there's some wisdom in there. There's also some, some stuff that we've grown out of. We don't believe those silly things anymore. Uh, and so... The, the scripture is not the very word of God, according to many who, who this very morning are in churches, but instead is just a fallible record of God's word. That's not how the author of Hebrews understands the Old Testament, is it? Uh, it is the very word of God. Anything else before we come to proof number four? I think that's right, yep, uh, that, that Christ uh, in his earthly ministry lived a perfectly righteous life and could be described, it's not like he lived a perfectly righteous life uh, in some sort of antiseptic, uh, sort of aloof way. He was right down here in the mud with us, right? He was, he was human, and though he was not born with a sin nature, the body that, that Christ had as a human being was subject to uh, the 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 effects of the fall. He could be hurt. He could be sick, right? Uh, and having come down and it been, uh, while continuing fully God, taking on humanity, adding full humanity to himself, uh, and living in this, this world with us, uh, it's not just that he was righteous and did not sin. It's that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There's a, there's a two-dimensional character to saying he did not sin and he was perfectly righteous. It's true. It's good theology. But there's a three-dimensional character to it when we, we read that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see, in the same way, we can make the distinction in ourselves. It's one thing not to sin. It's another to not want to sin, isn't it? Christ didn't want to sin. He, was, he loved righteousness, and he hated wickedness. And so we're called not merely to not sin, but to not love sin. And we're growing in that, right? And, and we will continue growing in that until Christ comes again. But we are moving towards it, and there is an end coming. And this is what we will be like on the day that Christ returns. We will love righteousness and hate wickedness. Uh, okay, anything else before proof four? Good insight. Thank you, Vaughn. That was helpful. Proof four, verses 13 and 14. The angels do not rule or subdue, but serve. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And here, for the first time, he makes explicit reference to us, right? Uh, I think the only other place would have been, uh, well, and he doesn't make explicit reference to us in verse 3. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Of course, we all understand he's talking about us and our sin. Uh, But here, he, for the first time, explicitly makes reference to those who are to inherit salvation. The angels exist as ministering spirits to serve for our sake. But Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and rules over his enemies. It's not a footnote, but this also relates to Isaiah 52, uh, where it says that the servant will be high and lifted up, mm-hmm. and only used for God. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Psalm 52, the servant will be high and lifted up, uh, which is, is echoed here. There's an allusion to that here in these verses. Uh, anything else before we, we move on to chapter 2? So I think it's safe to say that if you accept the Word of God as the very Word of God, if you understand that the Old Testament is God's Word, that it is true, it's inerrant, uh, and you agree with the author of Hebrews' interpretation that these passages are about Christ, uh, which we do, uh, then he has, has very ably uh, defended his case that Christ is greater than the angels. And we want to remember before we move on, because he's, he's going to move away from this, this language about angels, but again, he'll come back to it before we get to the end of chapter 2. Uh, And so, why? Why do we care that Christ is greater than the angels? Because the angels are messengers, and in these last days, God has sent a son. And so, his message, he and his message, are greater than the angels. Uh, and, And there's an even deeper truth, an even deeper reason that that matters, and that is because we are putting our trust in him. We're being asked to trust in him. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And who is he? And what is he? And what has he done? Well, for starters, he's greater than the prophets. As great as the prophets were, right? We'd all love to get uh, the opportunity to have a lunch date with Moses, ask whatever we want, right? Uh, Isaiah. Jeremiah doesn't seem like he'd be a very fun guy to be around, but it might be interesting nonetheless, right? Uh, And so, Christ is greater than all of these. He's also greater than the angels, and that's saying a lot, because what happens in Scripture when mankind encounters an angel? They pass out, right? They, They can't stand. There are times, for example, John himself in the Revelation, who will, he will worship an angel. He's so blown away by what stands before him. And if you're John, you've got to be excused for a moment, right? I mean, everywhere he's turning in this vision, there's these fantastic beasts, right? These amazing things, and occasionally it's Jesus. Uh, And so he turns around at one point, and there's an angel standing there in all of its glory, and he falls down on his face, and the angel has to say, no, 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 get up, get up. I'm a servant like you. I am, I'm just an angel, right? Don't worship me, worship God, And so the author of Hebrews has made it clear that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. 
So in as much as the angels are powerful, in as much as the angels are glorious, in as much as the angels come and faithfully speak the word of God, Christ is greater. His word is trustworthy. Okay, last chance before we move to chapter 2. Anything else? Let's look at the opening paragraph of chapter 2. This is the first of a series of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Okay, do you see the theme continuing here? First of all, therefore, another logical conjunction, because of everything I've just told you about Jesus, we need to pay a lot closer attention to the message we've heard. What message have we heard? It's the message that Jesus Christ has brought to us and which has further been delivered to us by the apostles, those who were physically present with him in his earthly ministry. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, you see how he's bringing that home? And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. Here he's talking about Christ. And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Do you see everything that the author is bringing to bear here on the trustworthiness, the reliability of the message of Christ? But now he's introduced a new element that we have a responsibility to believe that message. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Why? And here he brings again the full force of the argument he's been making about Christ's being greater than the prophets and greater than the angels. He says... The message the angels delivered, that they declared, proved to be reliable. And Christ is a greater messenger, and his message is a greater message. And part of that message is judgment, isn't it? That's the message that Christ has brought us, one of salvation and judgment. And because that is Christ's message, and it's a greater message and more reliable even than the angels, he says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and implied, therefore, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, there's no escaping the wrath of God for sin apart from the message brought by Jesus Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Why should we believe it? It was declared at first by the Lord. Right? He just keeps hammering this, this message from the very beginning, right? Uh, in various times, in various ways, God spoke through the prophets to our fathers. But now he's spoken by a son. And this is what we have in, verse, in chapter 2. The authors bring all of the argument of chapter 1 to bear on the importance of that message and the necessity of believing it. Because that message contains a message of judgment, and the judgment is for those who will not believe, but a message of salvation for those who believe. And so if we neglect the message, we are neglecting the great salvation, and there's nothing left for us but judgment. 
It was not only declared by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard, but God himself during Christ's earthly ministry bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you almost, are you beginning to feel just the, the full weight of this, right? The angels have said it. Jesus has said it. The apostles who heard him say it, they've repeated it. God himself attested that all of this was true by covering all of it up with his signs and wonders and miracles. We neglect it to our peril. And so this is the first warning of the author of Hebrews. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I'm going to pause because we need to talk about apostasy. But before we do, questions or observations? No, no, you're, you're my lifeline today. Nobody's talking. Everybody's trying to wake up still or something. Uh, almost certainly, and, and this is an illusion, right? Not I-L-L. I felt like um, Job when I said that. Um, not the biblical Job. Um, almost certainly because the author of Hebrews relies so heavily, not only on the Old Testament, but particularly on the Old Testament in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, almost certainly what we're seeing here is a reference to the Exodus, and the way that God dealt with those who refused to believe him in the Exodus. So how did we see it? Uh, we've not seen it with our own eyes, but we have these stories, right, of Achan, who kept something from the destruction of Ai and brought judgment on the entire camp. And at the end, it's God who brings judgment directly on Achan. Uh, you, you've got uh, the, the people of Israel, when they complained in the wilderness, and the ground opened up and swallowed them. Um, we've got all these examples in the Exodus in particular. And of course, we have examples outside of, of the Exodus account. But particularly in the Exodus account, we see these things. I think that this is, uh, that the fact that that's what he's thinking of is sustained by, uh, towards the end of the book, for example, when he says uh, that we, we, we must offer acceptable worship to God for our God is a consuming fire. Well, that's, that's the quote. That's all he says. But when has God ever been a consuming fire because somebody didn't worship him rightly? Nadab and Abihu. It's the Exodus, right? So I think that's what he's alluding to, and I think he, uh, he expects his audience, his original audience, to pick up on this, right? This message has been around since the Exodus, and look at what happens to people who reject it, who will not trust God and do what he says. So for everyone who rebels against God, there is an absolutely inescapable judgment coming, every bit as inescapable as Achan's judgment, every bit as, as inescapable as the judgment of those who grumbled. And we see that in black and white in the Exodus account. Uh, and again, it wasn't merely that the people were put to death by Moses, that he took a sword and killed them. The ground opens up and swallows them. It's that kind of thing, right? Uh, or the, uh, when the bronze serpent has to be lifted up. 
that God sends serpents into the camp and, and all of these people are dying. And so, uh, so probably uh, that's what the author has in mind when he says there uh, in verse 2, uh, and every transgression, he says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, past tense, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The other thing, too, is such a great salvation. The author clearly here, such a great salvation, salvation, he's talking about the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, not only the salvation we have received, but the salvation we have yet to receive. It's the fullness of all of the work of Christ for us. All of the promises of God are yes and amen. And in the Old Testament, where is such a great salvation on the greatest display? It's in the, the Exodus account. It's in Passover and the people coming out of uh, slavery in Egypt, right? So, almost certainly the author of Hebrews is thinking of the Exodus. Vaughn. You talk about rebellion. Is, the, is, the, is there a sense in which it's not only rebellion, but when we don't take God seriously, like what it seems to be what he's saying? Um, and I don't know if the, the examples you mentioned would, would demonstrate that or not, because they, they weren't just rebellion. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The way the Old Testament accounts speak of it is God's holiness. Uh, God, in giving commands to his people, expects them to keep those commands, and in keeping those commands, they are recognizing, preserving, if you will, as a testimony in the world, the holiness of God, the otherness of God, the transcendent quality of God. And when they sin against him, they, they attack that holiness. That's, that's the way the, the Old Testament, the language is used to describe the sin of the people. So that Achan, in keeping something from Ai, does not do what God said. And the very, the, you can draw a straight line to the logic. He didn't do what God said because he didn't believe what God said. God said, don't take anything or you'll be judged. Achan didn't believe God. He took something. And in not believing God, he was denying that God is God, denying his authority, denying his word. And so the judgment of God came upon him. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Practically speaking, uh, and I'll close with this. We're out of time for this morning. We'll pick up with verse 5 next week. Uh, practically speaking, we see this as, as pastors and ruling elders in the work of the church all the time, that people who drift away from the work drift away from God. I mean, it's one thing if somebody, if there's something they don't like about our worship, and they, so they decide they're going to move to another church. That happens sometimes. And we, we pray that God will preserve them, that they will be ministered to, that they will hear the gospel and believe the gospel in that church. But quite often, People don't drift away from us to another church. They drift away from us to nothing. And they would still insist that they're Christians. They just quit going to church. Uh, it was so prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s that Barna did a survey uh, about church attendance. And he said that the new evangelical does not believe he needs church. In fact, one of the most common refrains that they heard is that church 
is full of hypocrites. This is Christians. This is people who identified as evangelicals answering the survey. The people at church are hypocrites. I am better off by myself on a Sunday morning. A significant, significant, statistically significant number of people answered this way in Barna's survey. When you drift away from what God is doing, you drift away from God if you're not paying attention to the message. And part of the problem in the evangelical church today is we seem to think that the visible church is our idea. That all I need is me and Jesus. I've got my Bible. As long as I got my Bible, I got Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, for all her wards, the church is the work of God in the world. This visible church is the only thing he's doing institutionally in the world. It's us. And you can't keep the commandments throughout the New Testament. How in the world are you supposed to keep Paul's commandments about how we as Christians are to relate? If you never hang out with Christians at church, right, you're never here with us. If you drift away from the church, if you drift away from the message, and the church is where that message is faithfully proclaimed, then you potentially drift away from the promises and the commands and are at risk of drifting away from God entirely and coming under his judgment. And that's, uh, I'll pick up next week with apostasy. Um, We, as evangelicals, because we have this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is sometimes, I think, unhelpfully expressed as once saved, always saved, uh, something you never find in the Bible, once saved, always saved, Uh, because it's expressed that way, I think we, it makes, us, makes it difficult for us to read the New Testament, where the New Testament authors say to Christians, don't drift away or you'll go to hell. That's a pretty, pretty clean summary of what the author of Hebrews has said right here to a group of Christians. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Why? Because every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, and how will we escape it? if we neglect such a great salvation. Apostasy is a real thing. People who think they're Christians and look like Christians do at times abandon the faith and never come back. And none of us has the liberty to say that could never be me. So Paul will say things enigmatic like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work. Right? We, we've got to take it seriously. And so we'll open with that next week. I need to close. We're over time. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious uh, description and revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, here in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. We pray that in the weeks to come, uh, we, would, uh, we would enjoy reading it and coming to understand it. We would be challenged by it and strengthened, built up by it. Fathers, we go out into this week. I pray that we would not drift away from the message that we have heard, uh, but that we would be in your word and in prayer and that we would come together next week uh, to hear that word declared from the pulpit and from the lectern. Uh, Father, that, uh, that you would uh, do in us this work of calling us, equipping us, preparing us for the day of Christ's return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.